it's obvious that the problem with sin is the problem with sin and not our problem with God. And that God has never been our enemy. We have been his enemy. We have been the ones hostile and afraid of him. The ones alienated and separated from him. And so God's concern has been to bring us back to himself, to win us back, to help us to know him once again. As Ellen White puts it in Desire of Ages, Satan and his angels could not be reclaimed because they knew God. They sinned knowing that God was not the kind of person they were making him out to be. We, on the other hand, were deceived. And so God could win us back, could undeceive us with the truth. I'd like to raise the question again this afternoon that I raised last evening. What would it be like to see God face to face? We have been separated from him all our lives. And God did not intend that separation. That separation was the result of our choices to believe Satan's lies. God has wanted to be our friends. He has wanted to walk and talk with us. And I see him like the father in the parable, the longing of days, pacing back and forth in front of the gate, looking, scanning the horizon, waiting for us to come. Sometimes like the good shepherd, going through much to try to find that one lost sheep. And if you think about the history of God attempting to be with us, something very interesting emerges. In the beginning, where did Adam and Eve go to church? At home, right? God met them at home, in their backyard, in their front yard, maybe in their living room. Their living room was a garden. God walked and talked with Adam and Eve as friends. And even after sin began, God still met them in some way at the garden gate. And after the flood, he picked Abraham and did God say to Abraham, now you need to build me a temple so I can meet with you. No, he walked and talked with Abraham wherever Abraham pitched his tent at Abraham's house. God even called on Abraham to eat lunch with Abraham. And Abraham fixed him veal, and God ate it. And God said, thank you very much. I'd like a second helping, because in the, in the ancient Near East, you didn't ever turn down a good meal. So God has met us where we are, has spoken our language, and sometimes our language is pretty dark and pretty far removed from the ideal. And God has met us in our home, and his preferred way of meeting us is out in nature. Ellen White makes that rather clear when she talks about God's meeting with Abraham. Regrettably, we tend to take God's later and later intermediary measures, make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. Here's some laws to follow. We tend to take those measures that God, where God has met us where we are, and we have preferred those to the ideal original. That is, we prefer God to be up there, distant from us, instead of here at home with us. There are many ways we have done this. Early on, Satan got us to twist the sacrificial system from one of a symbol to explain something about death and how sin causes death, merely as a symbol, and turned it into something that did something for God. The blood appeased his wrath. Something about that sacrificial system was for God. And in, in the ancient Mesopotamians, they offered sacrifices to feed the gods because if you kept them full, they wouldn't be so angry. And uh, so he got us to twist everything that God gave us that met us where we are and twist them into something that distorted the truth about God. We took his law of love and twisted it into legal barriers to keep us away from intimate relationships with him of love and trust. 
And we've even, even taken his life here on earth and turned it into rules. His example for us to follow. And yes, it is an example, but the picture is bigger than that. And we've made the cross a legal stamp of his approval. The problem is God and on the ledgers of heaven instead of something that transforms our lives. We have turned righteousness into something legal and personal and sin into something that really doesn't touch us. We have created, I'm afraid, our own artificial virtual reality of salvation. And in the end, when we talk about God being veiled, the veil isn't just the one God has put on himself so that we could know him better. There's another veil Paul talks about, and that is the veil that we have put on our eyes. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This chapter recaps the story that we let, that led us into this whole discussion, the story of Moses and God's glory and having to put a veil on his face. It's Paul's commentary, you might say, on it. Um, I, I'm tempted to read the whole chapter, but I, I'll try to resist that temptation. Uh, first of all, Paul talks about being an epistle to be read by human beings, by by his by Jesus' disciples, and um, he talks about being a letter of Christ, verse three, prepared by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the Living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Do you see what Paul is doing there? When we make the law a legal document, we put it on stone. When it becomes something that changes our hearts, it has to be written in our hearts. Now, that really should be here. Heart, you know that the ancients did not understand anatomy and that the heart is where they thought a human being did their thinking. And uh, the Babylonians were even worse off. They thought that the thinking was done a little lower than that. Greeks moved it up a foot and uh, we modern people know that it's up a foot higher uh, in our minds. Now, if you start with verse 7, we get to the heart of what Paul says. Now, if the ministry of death, chiseled on letters on stone tablets, came in glory so that the people of Israel could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory of his face, a glory now set aside, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit come in glory? Verse 12. Since then we have such hope, we act with great boldness, not like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is here. Since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I wish I really could take these off and see each one of you, but I can't. Um, But assuming that this might be a veil over my eyes, when the Spirit is there, I am free. I don't need to have a particular set of lenses through which I look. Instead, I can, with unveiled face, verse 18, seeing the glory of the Lord as reflected in a mirror, I can be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. There's all kinds of metaphors running around here. The one, the hardening of the heart, is similar to the darkening of the mind. The the problem of Israel not being able to see that reflected glory shining from Moses' face is the problem of darkened minds or hardened hearts that simply could not bear the full evidence, the full manifestation, the full revelation of the love of God. They couldn't even bear a reflected one. I believe that it is possible to be a good Seventh-day Adventist and have a veil on our faces. If the Jews could do it, 
we could too. And therefore, it's dangerous for us to rest satisfied. We have arrived. We have all the truth. Once we do that, it's like something like this. I, I use this illustration in class sometimes. Um, you have a loaf of bread, the bread of life, okay? You want to keep that loaf carefully from anything that's going to poison it. You don't want any any um, thing mold growing in it. You don't want um, anything getting to it, anything attacking it. You don't want bugs coming into it. Um, you want to preserve it. Well, there's several ways to do that. So one way is put it in a bread box, make sure the bread box is sealed, and then stick it in the cupboard, nail it shut, you know, make sure it's tight. What happens to it? It does the very thing you don't want it to do, right? Well, there's other places you could put it. You could put it in the freezer. Have you ever done that to bread for six months? A year? It's happened to me. You pull it out. Do you want to eat it? (laughs) You see, the problem is that once you shut up truth in a box to preserve it from heresy, what happens to it? Ellen White uses the interesting metaphor that the, the, the children of Israel hoarded the truth. And she likens it to manna. Like the Israelites, you know, they weren't supposed to keep it over more than one day. And if they did, it stank. She said it became like that manna and it became hoary with age. And the truth of God, she said, was turned into a lie. Well, try the same thing. Um, the Bible, Bible's metaphor for truth is light. Try shutting light up in a box. Can you do that? Not very well. When you shut up light in a box, you turn it out, don't you? It ceases to be light. And that's the way truth is. Truth is not something I control. Truth is not something I hoard. Truth is not something I protect. Truth is like light, and light travels. I don't have any control over light. Light travels, and as it hits me, it is supposed to, in certain terms of our metaphor, transform me. Now, if I get hard, <laughs> it's going to bounce off of me and go somewhere else. It won't affect me. That's what we're dealing with, and that's why the historic Adventist belief was we do not have all the truth. No one has all the truth. We are to, until the Lord comes, until the end of the millennium, and throughout eternity, continue to progress in our understanding of the truth. And the minute we say we have it all, we've lost what we have. Or we're at least in danger of losing what we have had. So that's what I mean, what I think Paul means by this veil. Israel became hard and set and they set it all in concrete and refused to budge. And so when Jesus came, he didn't fit their 27. He didn't match what they believed the Messiah would be. The Messiah was to be a Roman conqueror. He was supposed to conquer the Romans. He was supposed to punish the wicked. He was supposed to act in ways opposite to how Jesus acted and behaved. And so they rejected him because they hardened their minds and they had a veil set over it. So how do we get over that? How can we come to see God unveiled? How can we come to the place where we could actually see God in his glory? Is that possible? Or did when God said to Moses, no one can see my face and live, did he mean forever and ever no one could ever see God's face and live? Well, we know there's going to be a resurrection and people will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Then we'll be able to see God face to face. Is that going to change our minds about God? Is it going to remove our veils like that? Is it going to transform our hardened hearts immediately? I doubt it. What is it that could actually enable a group of people to be able to see God before they're changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye? Now think carefully. When Paul talks about that, also in the same book, he talks about the righteous rising first and they're changed first and caught up first, then we which are remain. 
It means that Jesus comes back to a group of people who, for whom something has happened so marvelous that they actually can bear the light of his glory. What is it? I think it's found right here in the verse, last verse I read, verse 18. But I'm going to come back to that because I want to take you on a little bit of a different journey. You see, because when we view sin as a problem between us and God, we tend then to view him as a, like a judge handing out the rules and meeting out the sentences and the punishments and being maybe even the executor. We have him in then in a legal box or behind a legal veil. And we then see our concern is to then get right with God and to have his favor so that we won't be going to the other place or suffering the other experience. That becomes our overriding concern. As a result of that, we kind of minimize the idea of sanctification, which to me is no different than justification in terms of process, but maybe I'll come back to that later. But we tend to minimize the life of the Christian as something we do in response to that gift of salvation, or maybe even, in a more legal sense, we do it to earn God's favor. And we see the process of becoming like God as a process that has to do with making sure we aren't doing anything he doesn't like. And when I was a child, it seemed like there was this huge, long list of rules I was to obey. And many of them centered around the Sabbath. I remember growing up worrying from sundown Friday to sundown Sabbath that if I thought any certain thought or did any certain thing, that I was in real trouble with God. And I spent my whole Sabbath day worrying about it, and I thought that was keeping Sabbath holy. It was the farthest thing from what God wanted with me on Sabbath, anything I can imagine. But that's what it puts us into, this mode of trying to be good, trying to do what is right, trying to live up to the blueprint, trying to do what God requires of us. And what it does, I think, is deform us, not transform us. I'd like you to um, think about a passage in Romans 12, verse 2. Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think we've always read the verse this way. Do not be conformed to this world, but be conformed by the doing of your minds, so that you may do what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable in his sight. We have honestly tried to be Christian by being worldly, if I can put it that bluntly, by being conformed to God. You line up, you do what he says, you bow your head, you say, yes, God, even if you hate it. It's something like your mother saying, go mow the lawn, and you hate mowing the lawn, to go and you say, okay, I got to mow the lawn, I'll mow the lawn. I got to go to church and sit there real still, I will do it. It makes us into rebels. It conforms us only on the outside. It does not transform us on the inside by the renewing of our minds. The renewing of our minds means that we have to have a whole new way of thinking. A whole new way of perceiving. A whole new perception. And what Paul is saying here, and the reason he uses these two different verbs, is worldliness is being conformed, peer pressure. It's lining up, adhering to what you're being told or taught by whoever has the most power. That's worldliness. And he says, don't be conformed to the world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what it is God wants you to do. What is good? What is acceptable? What is perfect? Without that, we're on the wrong track. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a good illustration. I, I guess I'll use one of my own. Because of some ways that God made me, I found it difficult to be like everybody else when I grew up. And uh, I found that the harder I tried, the worse it got. So if I studied in college really hard, I got a B. If I studied even harder, I got a C. And it just seemed to work that way. And finally, one day, I said, this is ridiculous. I dropped out of college. I wasn't ever going to go back. And when I did go back, by some heavenly persuasion, I think, I decided to try something new, and so I took overload, so I would not try so hard. And lo and behold, I got almost straight A's. Um, it, it was that type of thing that we find in the spiritual life. The harder we try, the worse we get. It's like trying to plug a whole bunch of leaks. What you need is a new ship. <laughs> you plug the leak here and it leaks over here. And you plug another leak there and you, it leaks over here. And I find that people who are preoccupied with rules, they never keep them all. They have this collective set that they foist on everyone as the law, where they break all the others. And Jesus found the Jews doing that. And he said, you know, you tie the anise seed, you know, that little seed that's so um, tasty, you tithe anise, mint, and cumin. Those are tiny seeds. And neglect the weightier matters of love and justice and mercy. So it's like trying to do to be perfect, and it makes you the worst thing you can imagine. I mean, it doesn't work. And so what Paul is saying is we need a renewing of the mind. It's a process, a ch- total transforming process of thinking how we think. I'd like us to turn to one other place uh, where Jesus deals with this. Uh, I, I realize that most of us think we're beyond this, even though Ellen White says we should have this every day. Nicodemus came to visit Jesus at night, and Jesus said, after Nicodemus tried to get him to chit-chat a little bit, Jesus simply looked at Nicodemus and he said, Truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Now, I think we've always read this through the lens of no one can go to heaven without being born again. As though heaven is a place, and I believe it is, but, but Ellen White says heaven can begin here. We can experience it here. It begins here in our minds. Um, but Jesus didn't say those words. He didn't say you can't go to heaven unless you are born again. He said you can't see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. That means you can't see, you can't perceive, you can't understand the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And Nicodemus took that literally. And he said, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Jesus wasn't introducing, by the way, a new metaphor. The rabbis talked in these terms. Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? The problem was, you see, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, and the rabbis applied this metaphor to proselytes, not to themselves. So Nicodemus was offended, and he chose to take Jesus literally. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. You understand that? Okay, baptism and receiving the spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. And then he describes it like the wind that blows, and we don't see it, but it transforms what happens. And Jesus goes on wrestling with this metaphor and keeps talking about seeing. If you haven't seen what's here, if you don't understand what's here, how can you understand anything from heaven up there? And then he comes to these famous words that I think are the crux of what he's talking about. Verse 16, the most famous memory verse that everybody knows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son 
that anyone who trusts in him may not perish. Notice he didn't say may not be destroyed. May not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. One way of putting this is, the word, by the way, in the Greek is not condemn. That's translator's perversion. The word is judge. One way of putting this is, God did not send his son into the world to be its judge, but to be its physician. And what Jesus is suggesting to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you need to take off your legal lenses. And you need to change models for how you see the kingdom. And until you do that, you can't see it. It won't make any sense. Jesus goes on, those who believe in him or trust in him are not condemned or judged. But those who do not trust are condemned already because they have not trusted in the name of the only Son of God. Name meaning character. And this is the judgment. That the light, the truth, has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. What does that suggest about the judgment? Who judges anybody here? Jesus said this is the judgment that the light comes and some are transformed and show who they really are and others resist the light, reject it and reveal by their deeds who they really are. That's judgment. Judgment is not God's decision about us. It is our decision about God. That's how Jesus defines it here in John 3. The judgment is not God's decision about us. Let's look at another place on that. Um, John 12. This is Jesus' kind of summary of everything in John. John's kind of put it into one encapsulation. John 12:44. Then Jesus cried aloud. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. So if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. I do not judge anyone. Earlier in John, Jesus says, God has given me all all the judgment into the Son. The Son is the judge. But here he says, I do not judge anyone who hears my words And does not keep them, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. What is that judge? On the last day, the word I have spoken will serve as judge. How can that be? For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has himself given a commandment about what to say and what to speak. How can Jesus' words judge anyone? I think going back to John 3, the truth either sets us free or turns us into rebels. The light either transforms us or hardens us. You remember, we've always debated this little problem of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? People bring that question up all the time, and, and my students particularly who aren't Adventists bring it up perpetually. There's a way you can say God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You can't harden your heart against anything you haven't ever heard. God hardened Pharaoh's heart by sending him the truth. That's all he did. Remember in the morning sermon, I mentioned that in the final destruction of the wicked, the wicked advance against the city and God pulls out his weapon. What's his weapon? The revelation of the truth. That's the means by which God has always dealt with things and in Desire of Ages 759 and unfortunately I put that statement away with my other sermon but in uh, unless I yeah, I have it here 
Um, Desire of Ages 759. She makes this powerful statement. I think it is her most encapsulating statement on the great controversy, on ethics, on morality, and everything else. This is Desire of Ages 759. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one can cast a pebble to the earth. How easily can you do that? Let it go? Especially if the pebble has a mind of his own and wants to leave? So God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as letting him go. But he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. How so? I thought letting people go wasn't using force. Well, she goes on to make it clear that had God left Satan and his followers to reap the consequences of their choice, they would have perished, but it would have appeared as force. And even the appearance of force, God will not use. She says, compelling power is found only under Satan's government. That means it is wrong for us to force ourselves to be good. That is a satanic means of trying to be good, to force ourselves to be good. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority, his authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. No wrath, no justice. Where did they go? His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles, not their exercise, but the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral. And truth and love are to be the prevailing power. That's the rudiment, that's the bottom line, that's the foundation of everything we are to believe. So how in the world do we move from a legal preoccupation, an externalized preoccupation, to an internal one? Um... There are several ways I could go in talking about this. We could talk about God's law and why he used it. And I do want to do that. Um, but maybe what I'd like to do first is to take a little different approach. And the reason I'm, I'm struggling a little bit up here is I'm deviating from my notes. There's another message that I've tacked on to this three-part series for tonight. And I'm trying to build you up for that because if I don't, you'll be left with some gaps. So that's why I'm kind of rearranging this a little bit. Um, turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel, chapter 28. And let's go back to the beginning. Because if we go back to the beginning, we'll better understand why the law. Ezekiel 28 has been known as the chapter talking about the fall of Lucifer, along with Isaiah 14. That's been debated in some circles as to whether we really legitimately can use that chapter in that way. I would like to reassure you that from my studies of the ancient Near East, which is the area of my doctoral program, um, I find it not only biblically sound to do that, but historically sound as well. Um, I won't go into all the reasons why, except to say that the king of the prince of Tyre is probably Baal, or one of the Baals, known as Baal Mark. Melkart. Baal worship, along with Marduk worship, which was the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, merged into Zeus, the chief deity of the Greek pantheon, who in turn merged into Jupiter, the chief deity of the Roman pantheon. And one of Jupiter's titles is Light Bringer, one of the epithets of Lucifer. So this has historic validation, and, and it's, I have scholarly validation for what we're doing with that chapter outside of even Christian scholarship. It's, it's sound biblically and in a scholarly sense. So starting with um, verse 11, talks about this lamentation over the king of Tyre, and it's descriptive of the fall of Lucifer. You are the signet of perfection, verse 12. 
full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering. And it lists them. God decked out his most brilliant angel with all kinds of jewelry. Um, and then our young people say, now why can't we wear it? Well, there's a reason, and it goes on in the rest of the chapter. On the day you were created, they were prepared, and with an anointed cherub, or cherub, however you pronounce that, as guardian, I placed you. We say cherub, ancient Near Eastern would say cherub. You were on the holy mountain of God, and you walked among the stones of the fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. What was Lucifer's trade? It's making known the character of God. The, Dick Davidson from the seminary did a study of this word and discovered that etymologically it has to do with slander. So that basically in the abundance of Lucifer's slander, slander of God's character, you were filled with violence and you sinned. And Ellen White makes a very great description and story of redemption of of Satan standing up in the council and declaring war against God. I used to think growing up that it was God who declared war against Satan. No, it was the other way around. Satan is the one who brought violence into heaven. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and the guardian cherub drove you out from among the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. What does that mean? Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. We've been talking this whole Sabbath day about the glory of God, the splendor of God, and that it has to do with character. What is going on here is that Satan began to make a very decisive change, a very decisive shift in thinking about the nature of reality, particularly as it pertains to God. He began to see that beauty, the outward glory, the the physical elements of that glory were more important and more desirable than the internal elements of character, wisdom, thinking, and the thought processes. I call it externalism versus internalism. And what Lucifer did was to exchange one for the other. That is, he twisted the truth and perverted it and put it into a lie and said that the way God runs his universe is by arbitrary force. I think actually what he originally said is the way he should run his universe is by arbitrary force. He should use external measures. His laws are externally to be externally imposed instead of internally. And this may not seem very clear to you at first, but there's ways to look at it. And I'm going to just briefly give you a synopsis. In the beginning, it came as something of a shock to angels that there was such a thing as law. You remember that statement from Mount of Blessing? It came to them almost as something unheard of, that there should be a law. Why? Well, think about it in our families. Um, Some morning you're at the breakfast table and you have Jim and Sally and Susie all lined up around the table. And you give them the list of rules for the day. Don't hit anyone at school. Don't sass the teacher. Don't, don't, don't. And you go down this long, long, long list. And the kids go off to school and they behave perfectly like angels, right? They remember everything on that list. Is that the way you run your home? I doubt it. Um, I don't remember that many rules as a child. You see, in a family... You're not administering rules. You're showing, you're teaching, mostly by example. Isn't that true? That's why the famous line, do as I say and not as I do, came around. Um, Most children follow the example they see of their parents. That's how I learned to drive. I didn't learn to drive by sitting down and reading a manual on how to drive a car. I watched my dad. I watched my mom. And so when it got time to get behind the wheel, I sort of had an idea of of how to do it. Um, Almost everything like that in life is how we learn. We learn by example, by seeing a model, by beholding, we become changed. 
And if you had to line up Sally and Susie and, John and Jimmy every morning and say, now don't kill any of your classmates. And don't steal from any of your classmates' lunches. And don't, don't, don't. The neighbors, if they heard, would say, what is wrong with that family? There's something terribly wrong. Well, God never lined up the angels every morning and said, don't kill other angels and don't steal angels' wings. And don't look at other pretty angels. He never had to say those things. It would never have entered their head to say such things. Now, sometimes we say, and the first commandment in the Bible was the one that God gave Adam. Don't go near the tree. Don't eat of it. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, there's a law and there's a penalty. And, and we can make all kinds of legal things out of it. Well, remember when you had to tell your two-year-old, don't touch the hot stove? Were you laying down the law? It's the law. Don't touch the hot stove. Oh, your son didn't think of it that way. It was a warning. It was a statement of reality. Don't touch the hostel or you'll get burned. And what kind of a parent would you have been if you'd taken his little hand and forced him to touch the hostel so he would be burned as punishment for trying? I wouldn't. That would be abuse. No, we don't do that to our children. Why would God do that to us? And so the earliest law in the Old Testament exists after the flood. It's the law of um, chapter 9 that God gives to Noah when he says that if a person kills another person, their life will be taken. It's almost still a statement of reality. And he adds, because in the image of God you were created. Which is to say that a murderer first destroys himself. He destroys the image of God in himself before he kills another person. He has murdered himself first before he can kill another human being. Do you know that there's a chemical in the mid part of mid brain, mid part of the brain, that actually keeps animals from killing their own kind? They have found that in many wars, um, people haven't really killed that many people. <laughs> They've been mostly ancient wars are mostly mat, uh, shoving matches, and even in the Civil War, they discovered that many of the uh, infantry would uh, load their rifles many times over. They were full of rounds, but hardly anything had been shot. And if they did shoot anything, it was over the person's head. That's because this chemical release was released that keeps people from killing other human beings. And when that chemical is destroyed or bypassed is when a person can murder. That means there's something destroyed then of the image of God within them. Um, we were not made to kill one another. What I'm saying is that originally God's design was that of a family where everyone was to love everyone. And if you love someone, you aren't going to kill them, you aren't going to steal from them, you aren't going to commit adultery, you aren't going to do all the things that the Ten Commandments list. If you love one another, it means that you have learned to know God's love, that you have let God love you to the point where he is supreme in your life. He is the supreme lover. Why is that true? First John 4, again, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. I would like to suggest that that is a natural law. This is, the difference between natural law and positive law, what we call positive law is the whole legal uh, arena. The difference between natural law and positive law is that natural law works a certain way because that's the way it's made. It's, it's like reality. You can't change it. You can't break it. If you break it, you suffer definite consequences. Unlike natural law, positive law is external law. It is imposing rules on people and exacting punishment from them if they disobey. Positive law is like breaking the speed limit out here and getting a ticket. Positive law is something like um, grand theft and suffering legal consequences as being put in jail, suffering penalties. It's like murder and being executed for it. It's a legal law imposed on society which is in also has imposed penalties attached. 
Natural law, on the other hand, is like if I defy the law of gravity, I am likely to suffer at least some broken bones if I live through the experience. Natural law, God can interrupt. He can send the flood by sending other natural laws. He can break natural law in terms of what we see around us in nature. But his moral law is what we call immutable. Immutable means it can't be broken. What does that mean? That means that we cannot change the law by beholding we become changed. We become like the God we worship and admire. We become like either a tyrant if we see him as a tyrant, or we become like Jesus if we see him through Jesus' eyes. We can't break that law. We will become like the God we worship and admire. Likewise, we love because he first loved us. That is the only source of love. It love. Loving God is not something I can generate in myself. Not even angels can love God unless they understand that God has first loved them. This is an unbreakable law. It is foundationally secure. It can't be done any other way. And that's what Satan challenged. He said, oh yeah? That's not the way it works. And he set up his model, which was a whole different set of values, externalism. And I believe that his attempt was to undermine all the natural law. So instead of sin leading you to death, it's God who will kill you, externalism. Instead of um, people being valuable, things are valuable. Instead of you being valuable for who you are inside, you're valuable for how you look, for how you behave, for what you do, for how much you accomplish, for how much you're worth. He switched all of the labels, turned them upside down, and then he said, the way you really obey is there are laws and there are punishments and you just simply do what you're told. That was his system of government. So why then did God use law? Well, if you read the Old Testament sequentially, you find he's very reluctant. I like to ask my students, how many laws are there in Genesis? Very few. The law to Noah about murder, that's because everybody had been killing each other off before the flood. So God risks using law, and it's really not a law in the sense of ancient Near Eastern law, but it comes close. That's all. There are no other laws in the entire book of Genesis unless you view God's command to Adam as a law. I see it as a warning. That serpent was in the tree. Stay away. What about Exodus? Well, you take a quantum leap from Genesis to Exodus in terms of time, and you're standing there at the foot of Sinai, and God does give law, Ten Commandments. Are those legal laws? Well, you can look at them that way. But Paul says that the whole Ten Commandments can be summed up in one word, love. He said, if you really love your neighbor as yourself, you'll keep the Ten Commandments. So what God did is spell out love from Sinai. But what about those laws afterwards? God kept adding law and adding law and adding law. I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 20. And again, I'm going to read this from the Greek. I won't read Greek, I promise you, but... I'm going to give it to you the way I believe it should be translated. Paul talks about law in two ways. When he uses an article, he means the Ten Commandments or the moral law. When he doesn't use an article, he means legal process or the use of law or legal principle or legal model. In verse 20, he says, the use of law or Law as a principle or the legal model sneaked in. Now, I know most of your versions will say came in, but the Greek actually denotes something of a clandestine intruder sneaking in the door like a thief. The use of law sneaked in with the result that the trespass multiplied. Now, this is a history lesson. Who invented law? When was law invented? I, I know that's an unfair question. 
Most of you studied Western civilization and began with the Greeks. Um, and that's too bad. Western civilization should begin with the Babylonians. Babylonians is the earliest, civil, well, Mesopotamians, the Sumerians predominantly, were the earliest civilization in the ancient world. Guess who invented law? They did. And I'm talking about the earliest laws somewhere around 2500 B.C., before the time of Abraham. Human beings invented law. This is not something God invented. Historically speaking, human beings invented law, and we didn't do it to get rid of crime. <laughs> we invented it because of economics. The earliest law codes were economic law codes. So it was to protect our materialism, our externalism already. And we imposed them on other people. And the whole idea of law and law courts and all of that thing began in Babylon. Now, here's Israel at the foot of Sinai, already familiar with legal systems of the ancient Near East. And what is God going to do? A God who's willing to veil his face, speak our language, meet us where we are. What is he going to do? He's going to use law. So the use of law sneaked in with the result that sin increased. But where sin abounds, God's grace did much more abound. Because grace is what changes us, not law. Now turn to Galatians. Chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Paul has been discussing through Romans and into Galatians what makes us right with God. And he notes it's not law. So he says, verse 19, Why then the law? Notice he uses the article here. Why then the Ten Commandments? Why then all of the laws, the ceremonial laws, all of those laws? It was added because... Of transgressions. So now you have a chain reference here. Romans 5.20, the law, use of law sneaked in. We invented law, and it did increase trespasses, and thus God needed to use law, because not only did trespasses increase, but we were already so familiar with law that God, to meet us where we are, put a fence around us called law, not to cure us of sin, but to protect us from ourselves until we could know the truth about him. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring would come, who is Christ, whom, to whom the promise had been made, and it was ordained through angels by a mediator. Now verse 23, Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. We no longer have to be told, not, don't kill anyone. Because we now love. And that's why John spends so much time telling us that the sign of a person who's been born again is one who loves his brother. That's the sign. Because you no longer have to be told, now, don't kill anyone. You now love other people, and you're not going to kill them. You wouldn't even think of doing it. So that's what it means, too, by having the law written in our hearts. Because the law in God's hands is not a legal document. In God's hands, it is his way of doing things in a most loving, generous manner. That's why we call it the law of love. It's not a legal document. Love is not a legal entity at all. Love is a principle by which God runs the universe in the way that best helps people to grow, to develop the image of God within them. And uh, you remember Paul's description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is never rude, it's never impatient, never insists on having its own way. It's never jealous or, or arrogant. That is love. Love is patient and kind. And so on. So I believe that the Bible is really, in some total, all about incarnation. God becoming one of us, whether it was speaking our language by telling us to go ahead and build a sanctuary like other people had so that we could get to know him better. Now, it's true, he used 
the map of heaven to guide him. But, you know, angels are not tacked to the walls of heaven. And the sanctuary model had angels in the walls. Um, so we have to think of something bigger than a box. I think the, the sanctuary basically modeled heaven. You have the sky, you have angels. All interested in the plan of salvation that's depicted there. So he met us where we are. He created sandboxes when we need them. He created laws when we needed them. Because in our immature and ignorance, to keep us from hurting ourselves, to keep us from destroying ourselves before we learn the truth about him, we needed something to fence us in. Something like you do with a small child. Before a child can learn to fully operate from the principles of love and trust, what do you do? You create rules to keep them safe. Don't run in the street. Don't touch the hot stove. And so on. That's the way God has used law. So law doesn't make us right with God. It doesn't transform us. It takes something bigger than that. And I believe that the way God works is to operate through our minds. That what he wants most is a relationship of love and trust that will transform us. Because he is the supreme lover. He is the only one in the whole universe that is the source of love. Not one of us can love apart from being loved. If you study psychology, you know that a child, an infant, who is not loved adequately suffers enormously and is never capable of loving other people to the degree that he should have been able to. In fact, an infant showing no love will die. That's how crucial this is. That's how real it is. God created us to respond to love. And when we are not loved, we cannot respond. And when we do not accept God loving us and do not let him love us, we are then become hard and incapable of loving him and loving other people. So I believe, back to 2 Corinthians 3.18, that it is a law, as Ellen White has expressed it, that by beholding we become changed. That is how we become what we use the term to describe as sanctified. But how does this really happen? My goal is always to try to make these things as real as possible. And one of the models that I've come to appreciate is the Jacob one. Adventists have taught for years, and, and we now have different factions among us on this issue, but Adventists have taught for years that it is possible that God will have a group of people who resemble Jesus before he comes. They will actually reach that term that some people absolutely abhor called perfection. Um, the problem, the reason people abhor that term is because we have, we've used it. We've thought of perfection as living up to that huge long list of rules. And that is not perfection at all. That's back to the legal process that only destroys. It doesn't transform. So how, what about this perfection thing? Well, I believe that perfection is being made mature. In fact, the Greek word for perfect is mature. That's why Hebrews can say, Hebrews 2.10 can say, that Jesus was made perfect by the things he endured. Was he made sinless? Not hardly. He was made mature. That's why Paul so many times tells us to grow up, to stop eating baby food, and to eat the mature uh, fruit of the word. And to let our minds be transformed by that. To exercise our minds, to be able to distinguish between good and evil, which is what a mature person is capable of doing. So, this idea of perfection is really an idea of maturity. It is the idea of being transformed by beholding we become changed to the point where we automatically want to do the things that are right. That we would do it that way even if God did not tell us to do it. The model for that is the story of Jacob. Jacob has been used by Ellen White as a type of what God's people will experience before the end. And what I'd like to do is take Jacob and Jesus and put them together because I find this extremely powerful in light of what we've been talking about. You remember that Jacob was on his way to see Esau and he found out that Esau was coming with his men and Jacob knew what Esau was up to. 
And so he sent these droves of gifts to meet Esau, hoping to appease him. The word in the Hebrew there is to, to, to wipe off the anger off his face. <laughs> uh, he was hoping to placate Esau with these gifts. Now, you understand the state of mind Jacob is in. He knows he brought this on himself. He knows he stole his brother's blessing and his birthright. He cheated him out of that as well. And he knows that Esau has every right to be angry and, and try to kill him. And so he's very perturbed, and he knows that he, as a result, he also sinned against God. And so there he is. He sent everybody across the, the brook of Jabbok, and he's there alone. And he begins to pray and wrestle in his mind. Does God love me? Does he not love me? Does he love me? Does he not love me? He's not sure where he stands with God. And in the darkness, the Hebrew word, and and this is not reflected in any translation that I know of, but I studied this out recently because I was reading it from my devotions one morning in Hebrew, and I said, wow, that's not what I've always thought. Well, I've always thought that God came up and touched him on the shoulder, and he thought it was an enemy, and he turned and started fighting with him. The truth is that God came up to give Jacob a hug, apparently. Because the Hebrew word is that this person in the darkness came and embraced or intertwined with Jacob. He didn't seize him in the sense of grabbing him that way. But it was more of an embrace, an intertwining. The the Hebrew word means to intertwine oneself with someone else. That's, That's more like a hug. God came up to hug Jacob and Jacob perceived him as an enemy. And they began to wrestle and they wrestled all night long and all night long. Does God love me? Does he not? Does he love me? Does he not? And Jacob was just wrestling with this whole picture of God. Towards morning, the angel touched him in the thigh and dislocated his hip. Jacob knew he was wrestling with God. The interesting thing is that the whole play on words in the story is on the face He's afraid of Esau's face, and so he sends him all these gifts to wipe the anger off his face so that he might see his face and still live. Doesn't that sound like many people's picture of God? Hopefully not ours. And then God wrestles with him in the darkness, and he wonders what God's face is like. And then God touches him, and Jacob suddenly dawns on him that he totally misunderstood who God is. And he clings to him in repentance. And he says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Now, if Jacob were afraid of God, he wouldn't have thought he dared say those words. He had come to see the truth about God. And he said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And that's when God changed his name into a person who conquered God. That is, he conquered his perception, his misapprehension of God. And then Jacob said, he called the place Peniel, means face of God. He says, because I have seen the face of God and I am still alive. Now parallel that with the cross. Jesus is wrestling with the same thing. But of course, Jesus has never, unlike Jacob, Jesus has never believed Satan's lies. But he is being tempted to believe that God is arbitrary, that he is killing his son, that he is angry with Jesus, and that Jesus, his wrath is so great, Jesus can never see his father's reconciling face again. Ellen White says, amid the awful darkness... Apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his father's acceptance heretofore given him. He was acquainted with the character of his father. He understood his justice, his mercy, and his great love. By faith, he rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission, he committed himself to God. The sense of the loss of his father's favor was withdrawn. By faith, Christ was victor. You see, I believe that just as sin began with the darkening 
of our minds due to the acceptance of Satan's lies about God, that sin can only be removed by the truth. As it reforms, reclaims, renews our minds into the likeness of God. That is a process. It means taking time daily to spend with God. Taking time to make sure we know him as he really is. And never resting content that we have received all the light that we have been given. But that we must always ever up and onward keep abreast of truth. Thus it is true that by beholding we become changed. It is a law, both of the moral and spiritual nature, that by beholding we are changed. You know, I believe, I'm going to say something rather startling, but I believe that before Jesus comes, everybody on this planet will be perfect. They will either be perfectly like God, or they will be perfectly like Satan. The problem is that it won't be that simple. People won't go around saying, I'm perfect. And they won't say, I'm perfectly like Satan. They may say, I'm perfect like God, and it actually turn out to be Satan. We know that before Jesus comes, there's going to be a final deception. That Satan is actually going to clothe himself as an angel of light and pretend to be Jesus. And I know we Adventists have it all figured out. His feet are going to touch the ground and that will be the end of it for us. I'm afraid it won't be nearly that simple. (laughs) I'm afraid we have tried to make it. I think that's one of his deceptions is to make us think it's so easy that all we have to look is... Squint on that television screen. Now, now are his feet touching the ground? I don't think it can be nearly that simple. I think that's why it's so important and why in the pressure cooker of the last days we are going to be forced, in a sense, to deal with these issues and to make up our minds about God. And before Jesus comes, like Jacob and like Jesus, we will be confronted with all of Satan's lies again. We will have to, under the most dreadful circumstances, seemingly forsaken of God, seemingly in the darkest night of history, we will have to confront those lies and based on the evidence of our earlier study, prayer time, and walk with God, based on how we know him and his word, make up our minds about him. That's why I see it so important that we focus on him. The issue in the whole great controversy is not how good we can become, not how hard we work, not even how many souls we win. The issue in the great controversy is what kind of person is God? So I think what God wants and longs for most is to lift the veil from our minds, to penetrate that satanic darkness with the glory of his love and truth, to walk and talk with us once again as friends, and to see us finally face to face. Revelation 21.3 Now at last, God has his dwelling place among men. He will dwell among them as his God, and they will be his people. Let's pray. Finish then thy new creation. Pure and spotless, let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Change from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. 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 Praise.